0: David Erickson, and it's a real privilege to bring you the Word of God this morning. So today we are going to continue in our series in Revelation. We're in Revelation 14, and uh, you don't need the page number for your pew Bible. You just go to the last page. That's Revelation 22. Then flip back a few chapters, you'll get to Revelation 14. We're going to read the passage in a moment here. So it's uh, it's Labor Day weekend. And that means it is harvest time in America. So, living here in Southern California, we don't have to think a whole lot about how the food gets on the shelves in uh, Ralph's or Costco. It just kind of happens, but I think we're all familiar with pictures like this. This is a cornfield in Minnesota, the state where I grew up. And uh, right now, at the end of summer, beginning of fall, the corn is well overhead, so it's time to harvest it. And my dad worked in the city, he worked in downtown Minneapolis, uh, but we had a hobby farm right outside the city, and uh, one of my favorite memories uh, growing up there was baling alfalfa, which would happen about now. So we did not own a tractor or a baler, and most of our neighbors didn't either, but we had a, f- we had a few acres of alfalfa, and the neighbors would take turns uh, baling each other's fields. So the idea is that you, c- you, you run through with a tractor and you cut down the alfalfa, you let it dry for a couple days, and then that baler goes through and uh, we didn't, there wasn't the uh, expensive baler that would toss it up into the, the big wagon. Instead, it would just drop on the field. And so my job was to come along and pick up those bales and throw them on the wagon. And then the wagon would go to the barn, and we'd have to get those up into the hay mow up above the barn. Uh, so the cows would have... We had, a, we had two cows. So the cows would have something to eat during the long, cold winter. So that was, uh, that was harvest time. Uh, another part of harvest in the Midwest is the celebrations that come after the work is all done. So we all celebrate Thanksgiving. That's our national harvest festival. But in Minnesota, you kind of, you have to get started a little earlier before the cold and snow comes. So the harvest fest, the big one in Minnesota is actually going on right now. It's the Minnesota State Fair. It's called the Great Minnesota Get Together. It starts somewhere uh, mid-late August, runs for a couple weeks and finishes up uh, right now on Labor Day weekend. And that was also my memory that school uh, would never start before Labor Day in Minnesota because those, uh, you know, those warm sunny days are a bit precious. You got to get everything out of it. So this was the great harvest festival. So I bring all this up today because our passage has a lot to do with harvest and thinking about the purpose and the goal of harvest. So hopefully you've found the passage by now. So please stand as we read God's word together. Revelation chapter 14, starting in verse six. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Then I looked and behold, a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the great harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying... Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. What a passage, huh? So today's passage it continues from last week. Uh, We had the the vision of the uh, the two beasts. We had a vision of the hundred and forty four thousand, and now we have more visions. It's a collection of uh, it's a a variety of visions. There's lots of angels. It builds to a final judgment, and then it ends with a glorious doxology that feels like a climax. And Pastor Rick has taught us that Revelation is not a simple timeline from beginning to end, but it cycles back on itself. It repeats itself repeats ideas, repeats uh, events, and this is the end of one of those cycles. The cycle began in chapter 12. So we're going to have a reflection service next week and talk about this whole section, and then uh, later we're going to pick up the next cycle, which is introduced there in chapter 15, verse 1, but doesn't really uh, start unfolding until verse 5. So the first verse in our passage, chapter 14, verse 6, it starts with three angels The first angel flies above John with an eternal gospel. It's the good news of salvation for all nations, but it's also the news of impending judgment. There's a great separation of humanity that's about to happen. The second angel, in verse 8, announces the fall of Babylon. This is an ancient city, it's ancient to us, it was ancient to John. It hadn't existed for something like 500 years by the time when John wrote this. The third angel, in verse 9, announces judgment on anyone who worships the beast, which is the same beast we studied in chapter 13. Then after the three angels, we have uh, verses 12 and 13, which are encouragements to the saints, a call for endurance, a declaration of blessing on anyone who is faithful to the Lord, even unto death. And then chapter 14 concludes with a vision of a harvest, which is presided over by one like like a son of man with a golden crown on his head. And this, of course, is an image of Christ. And it has a scope that seems to be universal. It's the great harvest of souls at the end of the age. And it ends with a bloodshed that stretches the imagination. And then chapter 15 introduces the next cycle, and we close with a doxology. So that's our passage. So there's a lot here. There's a lot, actually, that's uh, quite familiar to us uh, because there's a lot of repetition, a lot of development in the book of Revelation. There's one thing that's somewhat new, uh, somewhat odd, And that's in verse 8, the city of Babylon. It's the first time it's introduced. So I'd like to take a brief look at what the symbol means. So uh, uh, in week one of our study, going back months, uh, you remember Rick uh, taught us that there's there's basically four views of the book of Revelation. And it turns out each view sees the Babylon differently. Uh, No surprise. Um, Everyone agrees that Babylon is a spiritual power. It's in contrast to the secular power of the beast. And both of them are in opposition to God and his people. And in chapter 17, a few chapters from now, we're going to see Babylon in all of her corrupt glory, where she's called the great prostitute. And she's destroyed then in chapter 18. All right, so what are the four views? Here they are. Sorry, the font is a bit smallish, but maybe you can pick it out here. Um, Historicists like Martin Luther read Revelation as the history of the church. And in his day, 16th century, the great enemy of the gospel was the Roman Catholic Church, and so the, he, he would view uh, Babylon as the papacy. Futurists, which is the most common view among evangelicals, uh, they see Babylon as a literal city in modern-day Iraq. It's going to be rebuilt on the ruins of the ancient city and will serve as a capital for a new worldwide religion. As you know, Rick is teaching us from the idealist position, uh, which is uh, it's also very common, and it sees Babylon as a symbol for spiritual and economic powers set up against God and against his people in all ages. All right, finally, there's the preterist position. I put it last because it happens to be the view I hold, and uh, the the preterist sees the main event of the book as having already occurred in the first century with the destruction of Jerusalem. So it it was future at the time of the writing, but in the very near future, and for us, we look backwards on the event. So, and the character of Babylon is especially uh, important in the preterist position, and maybe you've never heard this before, so I'm going to give you a few reasons for the view. So, if you're interested in this, take a few notes, write down a couple of the passages, you can go look them up, and uh, you know, come up and talk to me anytime, we'll have a good conversation. All right, so, this uh, very briefly, uh, the beast, uh, he's in chapter 13 and chapter 17, and that is, uh, from the preterist position, that is the Roman Empire, and it's pretty strongly hinted at by John. Babylon appears as the prostitute and she is leading the nations astray spiritually. In chapter 17, she rides on the beast until the beast turns and destroys her. And this would be the destruction of Jerusalem by Rome. There's a number of places where John identifies the prostitute as the great city where the prophets and saints were killed and where our Lord was crucified. You can see that in chapters 11, 17, 18. I think he's strongly hinting that Uh, Babylon is Jerusalem in symbolic language that's uh, reminiscent of the prophets. And finally, the book ends with the revealing of the new Jerusalem, the church, in contrast to the old Jerusalem after it's destroyed. So putting this together, the the Preterist believes John is writing to Christians in the mid-60s. The the Christians who are suffering under uh, persecution or about to suffer under persecution from Nero, who are suffering under persecution from unbelieving Judaism, but God is about to deliver his people by bringing down Jerusalem and eventually bringing down Rome. So that's the, that's the, the, the broad strokes of it. And one of the main reasons I hold this view is actually not, it's out, outside of the book of Revelation. It's uh, from all, Jesus' all Olivet Discourse. You can look it up in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, where Jesus predicts the destruction of Jerusalem in apocalyptic language. It's actually pretty similar to Revelation. So a good question to ask is if all this happened in the past, then like what's the point of the book for us today? Uh, I'd say the book of Revelation is God's defense and establishment of the church. The Roman Empire can't crush it. Unbelieving, unbelieving Judaism can't corrupt it. God is all in with his new bride, the church, and that truth continues for us today and in all generations until Christ comes back uh, to redeem his people to, uh, for the resurrection of the body and life for him, with him forever. There's no secular or spiritual power that can defeat God's church, which is a very similar message to what Rick has been giving us uh, week after week. All right, so all that said, let me point out the biggest weakness of the view uh, in the preterist position, which is there's actually pretty strong reasons to believe this book was written in around 95 AD, which is 25 years after the destruction of the temple, and the pres- this position kind of unravels at that point. And uh, every time Rick gives one of those reasons, I think, you know, oh crud, he might be right. <laughs> so um, so uh, there are reasons to, uh, for an early date, but I think it's a, it, it's a reminder that uh, any position we hold on Revelation, we probably should hold it a bit lightly uh, and uh, with a, lot, a whole lot of humility. All right, so that's the introduction to the passage and some of the interpretive issues. Um, for the rest of the time, I'd like to focus on three main themes that are presented here in the passage. And they are the harvest of the gospel, the torment of the wicked, the worship of the Almighty. And each one of them appears uh, multiple times in the passage. And it's really, the, the, I think, the driving point of the passage and has some good application for us. All right, we're going to go through one at a time here. So first, the harvest of the gospel. We see the theme right in the beginning, verses 6 and 7. The angel flies overhead and declares the gospel, the good news of salvation to all peoples It's a command. It's also an invitation to fear God, to give him glory. It's a gracious invitation because judgment is about to come, and this is the way of escape. Uh, It reminds me of the tornado warnings on the the radio in the Midwest. Uh, That was a warning for us. Or maybe you remember here in South County, we had the nuclear meltdown sirens. I forget the exact name of it, but like we, was it like once a month we have the practice siren? And I guess the idea is if that there, if, there if there was actually a meltdown, we'd hear the siren, and then maybe, I don't know what we'd do. Like, <laughs> like, like you know, good luck, everyone. <laughs> so, um, so but, but this way of escape is effective. It's the good news that Jesus died. He rose again on our behalf, and all of our sins are forgiven in him, and the wrath of God is completely satisfied in the blood of the Lamb. It's a gracious warning. And the call goes out to the whole earth, to every nation and tribe. It's no longer restricted to just Jews. It's not localized to just Israel, uh, following strict temple worship. It's a message for all peoples everywhere. And the result of this proclamation is a great harvest. Jesus talked about the harvest quite a bit in the gospel, in his announcement of the kingdom. In the gospel of Mark, he begins his ministry by saying, by Mark says he proclaimed the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And immediately after that he calls his disciples and says follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And when he taught about the kingdom he told parables and he described it as a harvest. Matthew 13 Jesus is the sower that went out to sow. He scatters the seed of the gospel on all types of soil and he prepares us to expect different types of responses. Some hear the word and reject it. Some seem to accept it, but they have no real belief. Others seem to grow for a time, but they're choked out by the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. But in others, the gospel message takes root, it grows, and it yields an abundant harvest 30 times, 60, even 100-fold a harvest. So Jesus taught us to expect that the harvest of the gospel is going to be abundant. He taught that the harvest of the kingdom will appear to be a mix of wheat and weeds, believers and unbelievers. But We shouldn't worry, because God is an all-competent judge, and he has no problem separating the weeds that are going to be gathered and burned from the wheat that's going to be gathered into the barn. And finally, after his death and resurrection, in his final words to his disciples and to us, Jesus commissions us to engage in the harvest Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the time for the gathering of all nations has come. The eternal gospel is proclaimed to the ends of the earth, and we should expect a great harvest. So back in Revelation, we've already seen the concept of harvest in the book. Uh, In chapters 6 and 7, several uh, several weeks ago, we had the opening of the seven seals, the first judgments on the earth. And after the sixth seal, we saw a vision of the 144,000 from the tribes of Israel, followed by a vision of a great multitude that no one could number, from every tribe, from from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne. And before the Lamb. And chapter 14 is very much parallel to this. It has the same vision of the 144,000, followed by that of a great harvest, two sharp sickles being swung across the earth. Look at that in verse 14. We see that the harvest happens in two distinct stages. First John sees one like a son of man with a golden crown sitting on a white cloud. It's the risen Christ, he's ruling and reigning in heaven with a sharp sickle in his hand. And just in case you don't know what a sickle looks like, there you go, there's a sickle. He takes it and he swings, and he gathers in a great harvest. The ESV, the NIV, the NASV, they use two words, they use reap, they talk about harvest and reaping. They use the word somewhat interchangeably, but in the original language, it's all the same root word, it's used four times. And in the second stage, there's also a sharp sickle but the wording is quite different. The word for harvest, the word harvest or reap doesn't appear. Instead, it talks about gathering grapevines and throwing them into a wine press. And God crushes the grapes in the fury of his wrath. And the wine flows out from the winepress like blood, which, with measurements that underscore how horrific this is. I think it's a, a revelation is full of symbols. And this symbol is meant to give you like a visceral reaction, that blood can actually flow that deep and that wide. The passage alludes to the prophets, look here from Joel chapter 3, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe, go in, tread, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow for their evil is great. You can see the book of Revelation takes the same idea from the Old Testament, pretty much the very words, and it adds imagery that makes it vivid. So what do we make of this? Commentators differ on whether or not this is one harvest uh, unto judgment, described in two ways, or whether it's two stages of harvest. One stage, a harvest of the saints to glory, and a second stage, a harvest of the wicked unto judgment. And my inclination, you probably already picked it up, is to see it as two stages, uh, because I think it fits the teaching of Jesus. He, He will gather the wheat and throw out the tares. He will send out his angel to gather fish of every kind, keeping the good, and throwing out the bad. Another reason is that harvesting is always done with a good goal in mind. You harvest so you can eat. And if it's a big harvest, you feast. Just like those harvests across the Midwest uh, leading to harvest festivals. So this harvest is leading to a great and glorious feast, the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, which we'll get to in chapter 19. But we do have a preview of the feast, even in this passage, in chapter 15, with the Song of the Lamb. God is bringing all of history, the timeline of history, to an end point. And because he brings it to an end point, as part of his plan, our lives have a point. So how do we apply this? What good can we make of this in our lives today? So as, uh, as evangelicals, our, our, atten- our, our tendency is to apply a passage like this by getting busy. Jesus has a big sickle, so let's all get out our little sickles and kind of join in the work. Um, but, uh, I, and we are, we are called to be Christ's ambassadors, but I don't see that in this passage here. Christ and his angels are doing all the work. So I think this is a, a passage that tells us that the harvest is imminent. I think this passage from Ephesians 5 helps us think about, gives us a way to apply that imminency. Our lives are short, they're just a vapor. Look at Ephesians 5:15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So our lives are just a vapor, right? We we should see them. Whether Christ is coming back in a year or in 10,000 years, our, we are the Lord of the harvest. We are moments away from appearing before the Lord of the harvest ourselves, aren't we? So we need to live wisely. So the, the passage is just full of, of uh, uh, ways to apply it. Let me just back up. You can just, and this is a passage that's really familiar to us. Uh, to to uh, steward our time. Don't be foolish. Thinking, about, thinking that you'll always have tomorrow. Instead, live each day in light of eternity that's about to break open. Are you stuck in alcoholism or in depression when there's eternal joy right around the corner? And put your mind on that. Let the Spirit lead you instead. Are you distracting yourself with worldly entertainment just to pass the time? In a short while, we're going to be singing the song of the Lamb. Or at the end of the passage there, are you struggling to respect and submit to your husband or to love your wife? who isn't everything uh, you were hoping for. Our temporary earthly marriages are preparing us to be the eternal bride of Christ. And any struggle we face now, it's, to meant, to, it's, help, it's meant to help us grow. So uh, I think the message is to hang in there. Don't give up. So these are some encouraging ways to think about the imminency of the harvest of the gospel. They're positive ways to think about it, but chapter 14 ends with an emphasis on harvest to judgment, the great winepress of the wrath of God. So that brings us to our second theme, the torment of the wicked. So back up in in, in chapter 14, back up to verse 9. The angel says that anyone who worships the beast and its image and receives the mark of the beast, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath. The beast Uh, introduced uh, uh, last week, is in partnership with Babylon. And verse 8 says that this Babylon makes all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. But now this gets turned on their own heads. It's they who have to drink the wine of passion. Uh, In my ESV, your Bible might have a footnote right there in verse 8. You'll see that in the original language, the phrase wine of passion can also be uh, rendered wine of wrath. It uses the same. The wine of passion of Babylon is the same words in verse ten as the wine of wrath. The beast and the prostitute they have a wrath, but God has a greater wrath that overcomes them. But in this, uh, in the in the in this in the narrative in our story, uh, it's not the beast and the prostitute that taste the wine of God's wrath in this chapter. That's not going to happen until the next chapter. In this passage. It's those who worship him. Those who worship the beast and receive his mark will drink the wine of God's wrath. And this is the end of all idolatry. You worship the beast, and then you share his fate. The beast hates God and hates God's people. And those who worship him become like him. They hate God, and they hate his people. And this follows a basic principle taught throughout the Bible, You become like what you worship. You can see it here in Psalm 135. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. So in a phrase coined by uh, G.K. Beale, you become like what you worship. It's built into our human nature. We're made to reflect the glory of another, and we are slowly transformed to become more and more like the thing which we reflect. So you've got to ask yourself, what am I reflecting? The more we look to Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, we become more and more like him. But if we worship the beast, or whatever worldly power it, rep- uh, it represents, we slowly, it's, it's uh, imperceptible to us, we become more like the beast And those who become like the beast share his fate. So what is their fate? Let's look at verse 10. It says, they drink the wine of God's wrath, pulled full strength into the cup of his anger. It's undiluted. It's completely overwhelming. If that isn't enough, it says, they are tormented in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So to be tormented is to suffer terrible pain. There's no hint in the passage that God delights in this suffering. It's not sadistic. Uh, We read, uh, like in uh, Ezekiel 18, that God says he takes no pleasure in the death of anyone, but instead he desires that all repent and live. But for those who refuse the gospel, who would rather curse God than fear God, who would rather destroy God's people than become one of God's people, he pours out his wrath. And it happens in his presence, When we see someone suffering, our instinct is to look away from it. It's too hard to look at. It's too horrible. But in verse 10, Jesus doesn't look away. It happens in his presence because it is just and right. And not only does the torment happen in his presence, but it continues in his presence forever and ever, with no rest, day and night, endless torment. So it's overwhelming, right, like the shock of it. Like if you kind of feel your mouth kind of hanging open right now, what is, you know, how can this be? Um, I think that's the sense of the passage. Uh, Christ's Community Church is part of the Evangelical Free Church of America. And uh, we have 10 articles in our Statement of Faith. Here's Article 10, the last article. It says, we believe that God commands everyone everywhere to believe the gospel by turning to him in repentance and receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that God will raise the dead bodily and judge the world, assigning the believer to condemnation and eternal conscious punishment, and the believer to eternal blessedness and joy with the Lord in the new heaven and the new earth, to the praise of his glorious grace, amen. So this is what's being taught here in the passage, the doctrine of eternal conscious punishment. So for some, this is like, uh, this is just too horrible. So they propose alternatives like annihilationism, where God punishes sin for a time, But the punishment stops because the sinner simply ceases to exist. The smoke smoke may keep rising up forever, but the torment stops. But I I don't think the text allows for it. The text uh, says that not only does the smoke go up forever and ever, but the worshipers of the beast themselves have no rest day or night. In contrast to the believers in verse 13, who are welcome to rest from their labors for all eternity. They all continue to exist All men are made in the image of God, and all will glorify their maker, some by being recipients of grace, others by being objects of his just wrath. So, uh, how do we apply this to our lives? Uh, It's so jarring to our modern sensibilities uh, that I think uh, our reflex as believers to defend scripture, somehow to come to God's defense, to give some rationale for how this could be, But uh, Revelation is a story, and the narrative is actually the opposite. In this passage, this is God rushing to our defense. I think the application, then, is in verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. The scene of God pouring out his wrath on those who would persecute us and kill us is an encouragement to endure. The Lamb is coming to our rescue. Put all your hope in him. Don't fear the beast or his followers. They seem terrible, but God has a terror, a righteous terror that reduces them to smoke. And if we really believe this, we become untouchable, don't we? The best Satan can do is he can destroy the body, but Jesus taught us that we know who can throw both body and soul into hell. We fear him only. This enables us to bless those who persecute us. To never repay evil for evil. As far as it depends on us, live peaceably with all. We never avenge ourselves. Not because there's no such thing as vengeance, but because it's not ours to deal out. We leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. You can read all that in Romans 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. And that brings us to our third and final theme. So just like those who worship the beast, they become like him and they share his fate. So those who worship God become like him and share his presence for all eternity. Jump back to the beginning of the passage. In verse 6, we saw the flying angel proclaiming the eternal gospel. He calls all nations and tribes to fear God, give him glory. But he also calls them to worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. In contrast to the beast who sets himself up in the place of God, we're called to worship our creator. He's made us to worship him and to enjoy that worship thoroughly. Our world is full of worship and praise. If you have a good meal, I take my wife out for dinner. We, uh, we, we, we like to split the entree. You know, it's uh, my age, it's, You know, that's the right calorie count. And, uh, and while you're eating the meal... You're, 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 I'm telling my wife, this is great. I'm, she's eating the same thing. She knows exactly how good it is, but I just feel compelled to, to say it. It increases my enjoyment. Uh, a Beethoven symphony, favorite composer of mine. I've heard them a, thousand, and a hundred times before, maybe not a thousand, a hundred times, I've heard those symphonies, and it sends a chill down your spine in the exact same spot. And in those moments, we often say, it doesn't get any better than this. But it's not true. It does get better. God uses our trials and our suffering to grow our capacity for joy, to prepare us for eternal worship that far exceeds what we're capable of here and now. I think that's what it, that explains the juxtaposition, the, kind of the jamming together of wrath and worship at the end of the passage. Chapter 14 ends with a bloodbath. But in chapter 15, verse 2, it breaks into a scene of glory, a glory we can understand because we can begin to understand because we were once enemies of God, but now we've been saved by grace. It's a scene of worship, a calm before the storm. It's a sea of glass mingled with the fire of judgment. And standing before the sea are those who had conquered the beast and its image. And how have they conquered? by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, by not taking his mark, even though it led to hardship and death. But they aren't dead. They live. And they sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Just like Moses led the Israelites to sing a song at the shores of the Red Sea after the defeat of Pharaoh, so we will sing after the defeat of God's enemies. Look at it in chapter 15, verse 3. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. The defeat of God's enemies is massive and it's mind-blowing. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. All the torment, all the bloodshed is just and true when God comes to the defense of his people. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy? It's the only possible response, to fear God and to glorify his name. We all fear what is out of our control and could lead to our ruin, and God is exactly that. But for those who know him, who view his power and his holiness from the safety of his grace, hidden in the cleft of the rock that is Christ, we can fear God and glorify his name. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. And we see it happening even now. The gospel going into all the world because the righteousness of God It has been revealed at the cross. People from every nation are pouring into the kingdom because of the grace and mercy of God. And someday we will see it in its fullness. So, as we wrap up, I think we let this passage, we apply the passage by just letting our hearts soar with uh, optimism, boundless optimism. We share the same destiny to worship God, joined with all the saints. We face suffering and death and regard ourselves as blessed to live as Christ and to die as gain. We don't fear Satan. We don't fear the beast or Babylon or any power set against God. They're doomed and we have no desire to be like them. And we encourage each other to to greater worship by recalling the great and amazing deeds of the Lord, his just and true ways. And the greatest and most amazing of them was done at the cross of Christ where the lamb was slain, and by his blood, a people from every tribe and language and people and nation were ransomed. A great harvest indeed. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are, we are overwhelmed by this passage. <clears throat> I'm overwhelmed by it. We're thrilled. Uh, we're also humbled by it. We see your righteous acts revealed in your word. Who will not fear you and glorify your name? You're altogether holy, you're just and true, you have unstoppable power, and yet you're gracious and kind to us, your people. You forgive us and preserve us. And Lord, help us to trust you and to live wisely as we wait for the glorious return of your Son, and it's in his name that we pray, amen. Amen. All right, uh, let's stand up and worship the lion and the lamb with this song. And uh, follow along as Brody leads us off. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.